The art creates conversations that science doesn't. And people can not particularly like the art or not understand it, but at least they have to confront it. Whereas unless we all walked around with our journal articles wrapped around our necks, nobody would know what we did. There's no visibility of that kind of intellectual work the way there is for art. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues address the general topic of new concepts, new challenges, new formats, envisaging the Creative Work PhD in an African research university. In this dialogue, I will be speaking to Professor Lenore Manderson, the director of the recent Watershed Conference at Wits University. The question we'll be exploring is, did the Watershed Conference bridge the art-science chasm? Lenora Manderson conceptualized and directed this historic conference at WITS, which ran from September the 11th to the 21st. Subtitled Art, Science and Elemental Politics, the Watershed Conference was driven by her conviction that art research practices are as necessary as physical science investigations to engage with the massive implications of climate change and pollution, ecological crises and environmental justice, particularly in South Africa. The conference brought together artists, engineers, scientists and activists, recognizing them as people working in distinctive ways on knowledge systems, questions of stewardship, water insecurity and the threats to planetary survival. Practicing artists from India, the USA, Peru and South Africa were a central component of Watershed, presenting their work in the form of installations, performance interventions and walks, poetry and book readings, and exhibitions across the WITS campus, while also engaging with a discourse of scientists, engineers and activists in panel discussions and seminars. In this dialogue, we discuss the background to the conference and the international experiences which informed the curation of the event. We will also address the effectiveness of such an event to create new forms of engagement and new imaginings of the issues raised by water in a transforming society such as South Africa. Lenore Manderson is Distinguished Professor of Public Health and Medical Anthropology in the School of Public Health at the University of the Witwatersrand. She's internationally known for her work in anthropology, social history and public health. She joined WITS in early 2014 after a decade as Honorary Professor while working in Australia. Lenore is also Distinguished Visiting Professor of Environmental Studies in the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society at Brown University province, USA. Brown University, her work includes a five-year program bringing together the natural and social sciences, humanities and the arts in conversations on environmental change and sustainability. This work inspired her to produce Watershed Efforts. I'm Krista Doherty. I'm Assistant Head of School for Arts Research in the Witz School of Arts. This has been really a breakthrough event on WITS campus. We haven't had this sort of conjunction of art, science, activism around a single issue in this way, to my knowledge. And I think it's been very important, and thank you for bringing this here and, and initiating it at WITS. Maybe you can just talk us through the background. How did you come to do Watershed at WITS campus? The original background was actually when I was in Australia in 2009 and a colleague of an, and I were talking through a range of things around the environment and around 
art and the coincidence was external, that is that I was involved in a project from Tipping Point, which is a particular interactive workshop experience that's organised by an English art and advocacy group called Juliet's Bicycle. So that was kind of our starting point. And in academic terms, the interesting thing that brought us together was what was it about the Southern Hemisphere? Because you've got different air systems and therefore different climates and different impacts as a result of the South and Northern oscillations. So we were having sort of serious climatology kind of talks interspersed with what art would look like and then what countries were affected. And Australia and South Africa are both in the Southern Hemisphere, as is Argentina and, of course, Chile and New Zealand. But what we thought is what would happen if we put together a project that brought together those countries and then brought to people across disciplines and we opted for bringing together an artist, a social scientist, who in all cases was an anthropologist and a climate scientist. And we had like a three-day workshop around, well, you know, what are the issues? And, you know, part of what we ended up with is identifying particular ecological geographic niches and industries and then thinking around how different art practices could be involved in reflecting the issues but at the same time documenting things like migration and mobility and response to changing production systems and so on. Then we wrote a grant and this was 2009 and it was a teeny bit early for the world and we didn't get funded. And so the idea was just put on side. But then my collaborator in Melbourne, who was a, the climatologist, was Amanda Lynch. And Amanda went to Brown University to head up what became the Institute at Brown for Environment and Society. And I don't know that we communicated much, but the idea continued. And then she invited me to join her and work with her at Brown. That was coincident to me deciding, in fact, I was going to come here as an academic. And so it was then a case of dividing time and thinking through tasks. And my job at Brown was simply to bring the arts and the humanities and practising arts as well as theory into conversations about the climate. And that was very pragmatic. It was not in any way related to initiatives like Juliet's Bicycle or David Buckland's Cape Farewell at all. The issue was simply that a number of institutes were being set up university-wide and they were all perceived to be about science with a capital S and therefore were marginalising stakeholders at a university that always has as part of its programming and its student experience an emphasis on the interdisciplinary. And so therefore it made sense. So the way in which I thought about it, I opted to only spend two months a year at Brown and therefore not do any classroom teaching but just take on this task. And I thought through it around the elements. And the elements, as in earth, air, fire, water, were relevant because they caught the imaginary of the literary and the historians and people working in other disciplines. So that if you are an Asianist, which I by training was, then if I think about Asia, both Chinese philosophies and practices and systems of understanding modalities, ontology, then you end up with those core elements in any case. So it was a really nice concrete starting point to do it. And it fitted with ways to think about climate change and its ongoing impact. So the urgency is there. You know, we have a warming world, 
and increasing destruction of biospheres and of people's livelihoods and of lives. It's very hard to see that. And I think that that's been part of the difficulty in getting certain politicians to pick up on and respond to that. I mean, they wake up in the morning in an air-conditioned apartment, they don't feel that the climate's heating, and one degree is not that perceptible. And art certainly helps bring home those kind of issues, and it feeds into advocacy and so on. So what we then did was year one was Earth, and I worked around modes of knowing, ontology and stewardship, and looking at issues scientifically and through the humanities and social scientists around traditional populations, understandings of the world, and the way in which that was trying to be accommodated through different jurisdictions and so on. And in the art practice, I worked with Shira Baryshnikov, whose father is Mikhail Baryshnikov. So it took me a while to be not absolutely overawed by someone who looked like her father and was a superb dancer. And she did a very wonderful choreographic piece with a company of people and the practice is contact improvisation. And contact improvisation, people are always dancing with someone else so they're physically using the other person's body. It's not like any other contemporary dance practice I know. And she used wet clay on a sprung wood floor so that every time a dancer or a couple working together hit the clay, they imprinted and the whole thing was called aftershock sampling effect. So the dance itself was this magnificent metaphor of the way in which industry and human settlement and colonisation impacts on the earth. So that was point one. That had a relatively problematic engagement of scientists that they didn't get it at all and they weren't that interested in contemporary dance. But the dancers were wonderful. They were really interested in being involved and being brought into a university environment. Some of them were, in fact, postdocs and academics in science who danced, but those worlds had been very separate. The second year we did Atmosphere, which was around, the year around us and so on. And that was much easier to operationalise, I think, in terms of what's in the air, which is everything from information systems moving through space to communications and but birds. We had an ornithologist from Kenya as the keynote speaker. And then a range of different art practices that resonated with it and I think that in terms of science and art coming together that was perhaps the most successful including that the artists and bizarrely two were performing art and acoustic ecologists from Australia and the one from the US was actually Australian by birth something which I hadn't realised till they were all together and thought funny everyone's speaking the same accent as me. But what they were doing, like for acoustic ecology, was measuring water pollution and translating it into sound, which is what Brian House had been doing, but he was actually showing work from the Okavonga Delta at the time. But others who'd been working with Indigenous populations and getting them to monitor water pollution and changes in flow changes in estuaries and so on with Indigenous populations working with UNESCO and, and the biosphere. So they were an incredibly impressive group of artists and that really links to Ed Osborne at Brown and his interest in contemporary art and acoustic ecology and so on. 
But there were other things. So Leah Barclay, who was an Australian, had an app on the iPhone and at different points all around the campus you could listen to a different sound from a rainforest in Brazil through your iPhone. So there were clever things that that were being done through that. And then I also had an artist who was still finishing his PhD at Brown who wired up for me the greenhouse on the roof where I was working. And the point is that there is a greenhouse and you walk in out of the lift and it sort of smells all humid and everything but it's very quiet and he used a 1970s or maybe 60s acoustic analog acoustics to simulate the sounds that critters would make references it's called the critter pond and then he had it on an iPad so you could move the sound around and it would modulate from move from day to night and through seasons so you'd walk out of the lift on the fourth floor and you would hear And it suddenly was alive and it was fabulous because people take a long time to venture into other buildings and discover it, but it really captured people's imagination, mine certainly. And then Ed and I went on to edit a special issue of Contemporary Music Review, really looking at the role of sound artists in monitoring changes in the environment and the significance of doing that, including because sound often picks up subtle changes in biodiversity of living creatures when visually you don't get it. So it's a very effective measure from that point of view, which Bernie Krause had originally begun in the late 60s. And Bernie Krause is a Californian acoustic ecologist who originally played with the Beatles and the Weavers, as in musician, but I mean, was a band man, and he went from that to acoustic ecology. So there's all these little coincidences In the third year was fire, and fire's visual, obviously, but that didn't sort of translate into pictures of the environment. What it then led to was a collaboration with the Rhode Island School of Design, RISD, with both the glass department and people in ceramics and with the Nature Lab. And the Nature Lab at RISD is a magnificent collection of taxidermied things and the odd living snake and crab and so on and fishes and stones and rocks and shells and everything for people to come and sketch and get a sense of life science drawing. And that was where, in fact, we had the opening reception. It was nothing like having wine and canapes in the company of a few stuffed bears. But in addition to that, there's a room which is the osteology lab, and the osteology lab includes all kinds of skeletons from mice and cockroaches through to really bits of big animals, plus a whole lot of plastic human skeletons as well. And David Katz from the ceramics department did an installation which really played around the role of fire in producing vessels. So he'd made vessels that were fired and then he had strings coming out of the vessels up through the mezzanine, so a two-storey osteology lab wrapped with wet clay that dried naturally and so over time the wet clay cracked and the vessels kept their form but also what was amazing was because it looked like a tree it had branches and it had a trunk which were the vessels people used to have their lunch in there around the tree and they appropriated the space no one before then I think other than the students at RISD even knew there was an osteology lab so we had great fun with that and then the glass department did a performance piece 
an evening performance called Hot Night, which in fact they do regularly. So you can just go for a free hot night and the students play around with working with glass and they do things like make volcanoes out. So they make a cone out of glass and put a hole in the tip and then they make a glass base, sit the hot cone onto the base and then you've got a volcano contained and then you drop things down the hole of the volcano to create effects like fireworks and drop orange peel and get sort of orange perfume. So that was all around it, but the people were talking, I mean the issues for fire were the role of fire is transformative and productive and destructive. And so it did include people talking about wildfire and the effect of wildfire and negotiations over who controls that and who owns land and stewardship and urban fire and so on, as well as the cost of the environment of manufacturing industry and where Brown is a place saturated with industrial waste. So again, it gets you to think about, well, what is the role of fire and, and how does fire fit in to conceptualising the threats to the environment? And then this year was Water's Edge and Water's Edge focused on water mouth text. So it was text-based and I worked with poets and particularly with Forrest Gander, who's an environmental poet in the US, but Brenda Hillman and Arthur Zee and several other people who are very senior poets in the country of, you know, Pulitzer Prize and other prize winning. So we had poetry readings and we had discussions around the challenges of writing about water, which is an ongoing project that I'm engaged in at the same time of talking about water shortage and contestations of water rights and so on. And then concurrent with all of that, then there was engagement of the John Carter Brown Library, which has the oldest early colonial imperial history collection of the Americas in the world. And they each year did an exhibition of their materials of rare books and maps and so on, picking up the theme of earth, air, fire, then water. And we had a film festival, film night each time this year with Donna Haraway's film and Thomas Pringle who you spoke to a couple of weeks ago has curated the film program for me and then various other things including the student poster presentations and flash lectures and so on. So we created a space where people would begin to talk across disciplines. By the fourth year it had taken off so that this year while I did Water's Edge and Writing on Water the Brown Institute of Art did a big thing called Polar Opposites, looking at ice and water. And the Bell Gallery did an exhibition of photographic work by a Danish photographer and film and so on. So others had picked up the issue around the environment and visualising the environment as well. And in fact, David Buckland was one of the speakers at the Brown Art Initiative, Polar Opposites, talking about his work in getting together that initiative and the implications of that. So, to answer the question, <laughs> I was concurrently starting work at Fitz and starting work at Brown, and the idea was that I would take one of the themes and do it at Fitz rather than at Brown. But I didn't want to break the continuity because I do think that there's a kind of accumulation both of lessons learned and practices engagement. So I did an extra one. And I'd always chatted to people around here about wanting to bring water. And water's the obvious one because for South Africa, 
but also for Australia and Argentina, I would think. That is, this 40 South network of countries, water is the big issue. And we will be affected later by things like sea rise, although the day that a bit of the Antarctic ice breaks off and floats up, then we are in serious trouble. But the short issue is these are countries where drought is our litmus test of a warming environment and about the difficulty of living in an environment. So that's where I wanted to take it. Now, in brackets, with all of that long story, the other thing was that in the sort of 2011-2012, I was part of an Australian Academy of Science commission on the executive committee that then did a three-volume document for the Australian government on population and sustainability, which also focused really on climate change, including it was co-chaired by two of the top climate scientists in the country and amongst the top in the world, both unfortunately are no longer alive. But that was also an occasion where I was much engaged in thinking around climate change and policy, including because very soon after both Michael Ropak and Tony McMichael died, the government changed and the first thing it did was shrink its climate program as irrelevant to the country. So there are lots of lessons around that and lots of issues that it seemed to me needed to consistently be worried away at if we are to expect the world to even be livable within another 50 years. Hence, there was interest that I bring water here And I started talking to people about it, I guess, June last year. So it had a lead time of about 15 months. And it was probably Steve Sack at the Origin Centre who suggested I called it Watershed rather than sort of Water's Edge Part 2 or Water Not an Edge or however else it might be framed. And Watershed was the perfect term both for the description of where the university sits and perfect in terms of a metaphor around the importance of thinking about policy and the watershed of bringing together arts and science. I mean, you can play with it in many ways, and however you play with it, you end up with this really interesting way of thinking about it. Then over the period, as you know, I just kept talking to people and bringing in people, and some people truly didn't get it, And other people got it because it sounded exciting but hadn't quite thought about it and others really had and and got involved that way. And it grew much bigger than I thought in the end because I was reluctant to cap it. And also I was very concerned to get as many people from this country involved as possible given that because it's co-funded with Brown, I was bringing people through the Brown program and I didn't want to overwhelm South Africa with the, oh, look, Americans have come. Let's talk about the environment where we're the ones who've got the lived experience of water and water shortage. It was entirely coincident, although I guess it was an incentive that Cape Town was in crisis through that whole planning period. And obviously that did help me think about the issues to some extent. It was fortuitous that there was a new Centre for Water Research and Development at this university, there was a new Oceanic Humanities program at the university, so there were people from different disciplines who were excited by the potential to talk about water. I think that as a program that was absolutely new 
it was wonderfully successful because no one had done it before and what still captures me are the number of people who I meet like in a yoga class who say we've not met but you're the watershed person so it's carrying I mean I've got to tell you having my conversation piece published in Plumbing Africa was a really big win when you're dealing with water Plumbing Africa is the place to go it is no impact factor though there's the problem it really has been watershed has been revelatory but What strikes me is prior to this, I'd always understood art science engagements on campus as a science engaging with an artist or an artist engaging with a science. We've had examples of that happening here already. But what Watershed has shown is that by bringing artists, scientists, activists, policy experts to an issue art can play, I think, a much more significant role. Could you speak about what kind of a role the different art interventions played in a project that was about water scarcity, water justice here in South Africa? They played so many different roles, and I think it's really hard at this point even to say, well, this is what art brought to a debate, this is what the scientists brought to the debate, and the debate was really a policy debate. I think in the end, but very quickly, policy became the focal point in Watershed because what water does is expose the fault lines of society in exactly the same way that something like HIV does. And so every conversation as time went on and as I began with others to populate the panels and the sort of scientific input, it was all about water justice, it was about climate justice, about do people have access to things we regard as the commons? And the commons is earth, air, water, I guess fire. But things that are out there, the environment is technically a common, excepting people have slapped ownership onto those commons so that now water is owned and people can sell it and trade it as they can trade carbon. It's a very funny thing when you begin to think about the environment as a set of commodities rather than as something that's just there that allows humans and non-human animals and the biota to continue to be and therefore for Earth with a capital E to continue. But there were some really important engagements. One of the things that I found most successful, you know, you can't get everything perfect in terms of timing at the beginning But I wish that what we had done was physically put Uttal with an office into the Chamber of Mines so that Uttal Bola's entire reworking and disrupting the Chamber of Mines, I mean, to have had him there would have been fabulous. And the interesting thing is that according to the people I talked to in the building, like the head of Digimines and the dean, there's conversations all the time still about, you know, what are the ethics of mining? What do we do about illegal mining? Are we really polluting the earth as visually and as visibly as as Uttal shows on those huge giant screens? I think that's not advocacy. That's actually opening up a new question of research and new directions. Can one really... There is a centre for sustainability of mining in that building, but what does sustainability mean? When you're plundering the earth and sitting here, you can see you know, the geography of a city that was built on mining. Lucia's work with plants and plant adaptation and long evolutionary responses to water scarcity, 
I found really interesting. I thought that her sculptures were magnificent. And she spent a lot of time in the bioscience library and it would be just fabulous to say, well, what would it mean to have someone who was there and who did a series of little workshops and to work differently? So it's not a grand show and tell as this was, but much more tightly sutured into different programs. Brian House's work, Acid Love on Acid Mine Drainage, over at the Somalahong Centre was fabulous. So many people, including scientists, did not know that there were sound waves produced with changes in density of water unless they were interested in that very specifically. So you begin to apprehend the physical environment differently as well as the political and social environment. And I think that those three particularly, and then Thomas by virtue of his interventions and had Wendy been here for longer then, and certainly the South Africans who are here also. So Christine's work on fracking really threw people that they hadn't, I mean, they had thought about it. How could you not think about it? But actually putting in front of people a series of prints on metal that had been fracked has its own merit of creating a discordance which actually triggers you to think about research questions. The reverse is true, that the researchers I'm talking about were dependent on certain knowledge that they could then interpret. And they were very much scientists. I mean, Lucia and Brian and Thomas probably, I mean, all have very, very, very sharp minds where they're engaging all the time with new research. And that's something that universities don't get very well. They just assume that people over in a school of arts do painting and think arty thoughts and the real work goes on over at the West Campus, and it's absolute rubbish. So it's disruptive in that respect, and it really builds up a respect for different ways in which knowledge is used, which then in turn has policy implications or advocacy value. So we're talking about an engagement that's much more profound than the art merely being a point of accessibility for public to engage with the scientific issues, but... The art interventions have the potential to set new research agendas in relation to the bigger issues such as water and the environment. I mean, I've worked a bit on art and advocacy around biodiversity. It's one of the things that I still teach through Brown. And the problem with that is that it does limit and box artists in very particular ways and it somehow homogenises them. Artists go and do arty things and the rest of us do real work and they're all got the same kind of practice and the same mindsets. We would never say that of everybody on this campus outside of the School of Art. Advocacy is important and it was incredibly powerful in Paris in 2015 and I was there for that. I wasn't at the Conference of the Parties but I was coincidentally in Paris and everywhere you moved there was more artwork and more discussion, and the art creates conversations that science doesn't. And people can not particularly like the art or not understand it, but at least they have to confront it. Whereas unless we all walked around with our journal articles wrapped around our necks, nobody would know what we did right. There's no visibility of that kind of intellectual work the way there is for art. Some work is much more accessible than other artwork and I think that also doesn't matter and I don't think it matters at all that some people can look at 
a sculpture of a plant with thorns and just say, well, I could have got one of them out of my garden and somebody else really think around evolution and the implications of climate warming and take that conversation further and further in their mind. But I think it does open up questions. It's part of the job for lots of people who make art as a living that it is around exploring new ideas and playing in a way that you certainly don't play if you're doing mainstream science. There's no hypothesis with art, otherwise it wouldn't be art. It was one of the scientists at the conference, Amanda Lynch, who I thought raised a very profound point about the relationship between art practice and science policy thinking. And she pointed out how a lot of the understanding of policy and even science now is increasingly aware of a mythological or narratological substrata. And in her view, where art can play a really important role is engaging in that mythological substrata. She has a new book coming out, um, The Urgency of the Anthropocene, where she and her co-author, who's a Norwegian geographer, Siri Veland, talk a lot around myth. And in fact, as I read their use of the term myth, they're talking about what I would call narrative. For me, what was so interesting about that was that when I was on this Academy of Science Committee in Australia, working with people from the CSIRO, which is the same as the CSIR here, Scientific Industrial Research, they were talking about narrative all the time. And the CSIR scientist's job is to translate to do translational research, to do applied research and to translate those research findings to policy within the confines of their own department. And these were largely climate scientists and physicists. And their argument was, we've got to have a narrative. We want narratives. And for them, the narrative for at least the physicists was around planetary boundaries and safe operating spaces. And I'd originally been brought in to provide them with some human narratives. And the human narrative was, well, what happens when societies fall apart? There must be a story. And they were looking for a single story. And the problem with the single story is it doesn't exist. So I spent a lot of time, one, trying to understand what they meant by narrative, because I'm used to it as an anthropologist. And it certainly doesn't mean, here's a scenario for us to give politicians for them to change their laws but also to think around how you work with alternative scenarios and how you then begin to get people to think through those and for them to have some kind of concreteness. And in a way, again, I do think that part of the failure or the difficulties now around climate science and about policy change and so on is the limits to the imagination of a number of international heads of state that we won't discuss. I mean, they actually cannot imagine what the world might look like if it were warmer. And one, they don't live in Africa that's doubling its rate of heating up more than anywhere else in the world. But also, if you live in a very expensive apartment with really good air conditioning, you're never going to know. And you're always going to be thinking about how to maximise profits rather than sustain the planet. And I do think that that's important. The other thing is that what different artists provide is multiple narratives and multiple ways of understanding. So to go back to Shura Barishnikov's dance piece, it's not the piece 
on its own, it's a fact that amongst other things on this sprung floorboard is a sample of wet clay. So every time the artist lands on the clay, they imprint and break up the clay and it literalises the effect of humans on earth, which does, again, trigger you to thinking. But, I mean, to go back to that broad thing, I mean, I think well, what we need to understand is that we all have narratives about what the world is like, that the challenge now is that nobody is very happy with the emerging narratives of a warming world. And yet they're not scared enough or they feel too disempowered to intervene, to shift that narrative. And then the question is not what are the narratives, but how do we break those narratives to create a future or a sense of a future that is not one leading towards doom? Yeah. What also came up in the conference, particularly in the discussions and comments from the floor, and interestingly it was a point that Atul Bala, yeah. as an Indian artist, made very strongly, was the spiritual importance of water. Many of the delegates, I think particularly in our policy discussions, were talking about the fact that water policy doesn't recognize the spiritual importance of water for communities. And it would seem to me that it's that aspect that art quite decisively brought into what could have just been a discussion between scientists, policymakers, and activists. Yes. For me, the interesting thing is you could also say that about fire and about earth. It's only air that seems to lack that component unless it's around different forms of movements of air, storms and so on. I mean, I'm uncomfortable with the discussions on spirituality, but that's because I'm an Australian and until the present Prime Minister, we were a very secular people. But... No, I know that's not the case in Africa. So what I'm trying to do is to steer away from being overly sentimental about the value of water because it feeds into our spiritual well-being, which it clearly does. But you can't imagine a world without water. And part of the power of water, well, it is impossible because life will not exist without water. So part of the power of water that then gets reflected in spiritual belief and practice is not that it's life-affirming, but it is essential to life. And we are, you know, 70 to 80% water, all of us. So we are composed of water and the world is composed of water. So without it, there is no world. So it has value in that respect. The issues that people, though, were talking about was often around particular water bodies. And different peoples will have different relations with particular bodies of water for multiple reasons, including practical reasons like their food comes from water and that's where you bathe and wash and where you get water to drink and eat and everything else and clearly for the beauty of water as a point. And so some of the discussions of spirituality are around the meditative moments of water and that's obviously what captures a lot of the people who write around water in different ways and... Now, I've been struck by some of the poets I've been working with in the US around water. Akiko Bush is actually not a poet. She's a creative non-fiction writer who, as part of her practice, has made a point over the last, say, 20 years of swimming across rivers. And it's an act not just of the sort of physical exercise of I'm going to swim another river or of if I swim a seven rivers, then I'll have a book. This is a good idea. I mean, I think it is much more around immersing herself in an environment that is always 
there and never there. I mean, the, the beauty of water is that it moves. I mean, you know, the, that old adage of not being able to swim the same river twice. You're always in something new and, and there is a contemplational moment in engaging with water in that way. But I think you're right. I mean, I think people were really captured by the idea that this was a spiritual element that should be preserved rather than taking on the most materialist and physical thing, which was without it, we aren't. Whereas, I mean, I'd always go back to the without it, we aren't. And it's kind of my modification of an Ubuntu quip, you know, that there is something about water is essential and therefore it has to be harnessed and managed and cared for and maintained and sustained. What do you think was achieved through this two weeks of conference and arts and public events discussions? Because certainly I noticed that I'm not sure how often the conference successfully broke through the silos in that the science-orientated panel discussions did tend to be scientists talking to each other. Very much humanities events were humanities people. What has actually been achieved in your view and where can it go from here? I think part of the problem with some of the panels that were the most contained is that they were organised as being contained from the start with. So it wasn't that people from the arts or humanities didn't go to a symposium on physical properties of water. It's that they weren't there in the first place. So there was no natural way to move across the campus to go to a panel. I mean, you know, there's no taken for granted obvious reason why you would find something like that interesting. And the reverse is true, that if the panel has a very particular focus on, say, 19th century history of water, which didn't exist in our programme, but still, then someone from chemistry or from sports centre or something is not going to come up the hill and listen to that because any more than they would for any other such symposium. But there were symposia and panels that were put together that were diverse And there was a strong interest in that, including with the student presentations. So that the student presentations, the flash lectures and the posters brought together geographers and environmental scientists and engineers and community activists and artists, and they really did engage. And I think one would be naive to hope for too much happening too quickly. The point is it was the beginning of a conversation which by people's interest, grew rather larger than we might have thought. And it continues to exist. So I still do have people come up to me and say, one, how was Watershed and how much cover we got? And I read the article in the conversation and, and. And so there are those ongoing ripples. We can only hope that Art Africa will just be a great big splash that reinforces that and other projects that come out of it. So I think that was a really valuable outcome. I think that the understanding of the value of having people in place and residencies was terrific and it would be lovely to do more of that, to have opportunities for someone anywhere in the world to apply to come here because here, that's one of the things that really came out of it is that anybody who visited left a changed person, like they had not engaged with the issues or understood the issues or understood the place so that was fabulous it was very exciting and that will produce more collaborations but if one could say well let's focus on the sciences 
take a different theme. Let's say it's all around biology and botany and biota and biodiversity and so on and have a couple of resident artists. Would that change things even more? I think one just has to keep on experimenting. And there are models, I mean, people keep on experimenting all the time. Would it make a difference if a physicist or chemist came and spent some time in the Witt School of Art, possibly not for the people in the Witt School of Art, certainly for that person who might just run back. I mean, some people are, by avocation and temperament, entirely unsuited to interdisciplinary projects and other people thrive on it because it helps them think. And what we're trying to do is to sort of build up power for that group of people. Lenore, thank you very much. We've just got five minutes left. I'd like to open it up to our audience and if any of the members of the audience have got a question or comment. I'm Brett Piper. So, Lenore, you've spoken to the many, almost multifarious ways in which the presence of artists in these collaborations, and now maybe we can also talk across the four projects rather than just Watershed, how the contribution has been at many levels. So the question we keep trying to tease out in our own work and our place in the university is precisely what is the nature of that epistemological contribution, if you like, the triggers that you say are triggers to new research questions or maybe new approaches to those questions and so on. So is there anything else that, you know, stepping back and looking over the four respective projects that you would identify as something to maybe try and plumb in even more depth in what happens when we have these, these kinds of collaborations or these mutual provocations. Because at the end of the day, for us, it raises interesting questions about what kind of teaching we could be strengthening. We have a conversation, David and I, often about the ways in which in our sphere the line between research and teaching is not a clear one, and in fact we'd want to complicate that. So the kinds of knowing that art brings to the conversation. Even though it's almost impossible to talk about it in general, I have the sense that if you talk about specific projects, one can get much more tangible about it. I mean, if I can just elaborate slightly, I mean, I think you would be a strong advocate for what I describe as the critique of the decorative argument for the arts on campus. You know, we enhance student life, we entertain, we bring beauty to graduation ceremonies and so on. But what we're saying we're doing in these kinds of collaborations is at the heart of the academic project, actually, and maybe enabling the scientific project to be approached differently. Indeed. I would resist the arts bring decorative value to campus straight away. But I think any art forces you to engage and to think about whatever it is that's being presented artistically. And in a way, although it's much harder to pin down, if the role of the university is to support critical thinking, then the arts as a practice and research is critical to that task because that's where so much of the critical thinking is going on and then it gets reflected in something on the wall or something around movement or a piece of music or so on. But because it has been built from scratch. It's not just been appropriated and summarised. I mean, no one as an arts researcher thinks, I'll do some new music, I'll just see what happens if I sort of suture together a bit of Brahms and a bit of Bach and a bit of Beethoven because they all begin with B and let's see whether they're going to be fantastic. So there is a very solid, and I speak, of course, as a non-art practitioner, 
but a very solid way of engaging with aesthetics as a method of critique that then feeds into a critique around society. So it's also, I mean, impossible to imagine what it would be like without it and that it would seem to me a sort of thin university that didn't have arts practice as a component of the university in the same way as it would be a very thin university without more conventional arts subjects like literature and and history. And we're always also, of course, thinking, well, are they really valuable or do we stay with, you know, the most concrete sciences, you know, normal sciences of Kuhn or so on. It is easier to think about individual artists and it's hard to think about, well, how are students building up that and what is their role? But of course, students don't say students all the time. And if all that happened from most of the students is that they went into community engagement type practices, they'll change what they're doing with people and change the impact. And they're not going to make people just feel good. That's not their role either. But it is around a powerful way to think outside of the most conventional ways. And I think that that's why I like it. And where I see it then coming together for me is because it actually illustrates very clearly some of those issues. And that's why I was earlier talking about the work of Leah Barclay and the use of underwater microphones to capture the sound of different waterways, not just because of waves and so on, but pollution. Water sounds different with pollution. That information feeds in to ways we think about water, I think, much in ways that are different from but no less important than measuring the heavy metals in a water source. But she does it in a way that then can be listened to by other people, so it doesn't stay as data that only scientists deal with and then reduce to a table, to a line in an article, that it's accessible for all. And what any artist is doing, as is clear at present in Johannesburg from what's on, is that any art practice asks that we engage and question what we're seeing and why we're reacting to it and how, what does it mean. Lenore, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, and Professor Lenore Manderson. This is part of an ongoing series of discussions, seminars, and workshops under the theme New Concepts, New Challenges, New Formats, envisaging the Creative Work PhD in an African research university. This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew F. Mellon Foundation as part of their funding for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts. The song used in this podcast is Decompress by Lee Rosvera, licensed via Creative Commons Attribution 3.0.